in my thoughts about my upcoming topic of the retreat, the half-day retreat on awakening, truth, and a community. Uh, part of the imagery in my mind was this, this group uh, sitting together and how each of you can, more than you used to be able to in the way you, we used to be configured, you can see each other now. And that's one of the attractions of shifting to this way of meeting. And, and I was thinking tonight in terms of being able to see each other and what that, what that actually, um, what, actu- what that does when we actually see each other. And sometimes it's useful to add a little reflection to that seeing of each other. Like it's likely that each person in this room, if you look around, uh, if you've entered into the spiritual path, you will, um, you will have experienced some distress. So everybody in this room has experienced some distress. So if you look around, you can see the distress that people have experienced. And this is not, of course, not everything you see, but this is part of what, what opens our hearts when we really tune into somebody and their losses and their challenges, uh, it somehow breaks that spell of objectifying people as just either their, uh, their role or their appearance or their this or that. You see into the, the, um, the heart of, of our humanity. And... You know, when I was thinking about that tonight, the fact that we can see each other, I was thinking about the spiritual path. And one of my um, favorite teachers back in the late 70s was a psychologist uh, and Dharma teacher named Jack Engler. Maybe some of you in this room sat with him. He brought Dharma to a, a very straight uh, psychiatric psychiatric institute, uh, the Menninger Foundation in Topeka, and he he had, had to seem to bring together these worlds of psychology and and Dharma. And when he was writing his, I think he wrote his dissertation, his doctoral dissertation at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And when he wrote his dissertation, he did a phenomenological study which is the phenomenology is the study of what an experience is. And, and it's done through questionnaires and interviews. And after interviewing a lot of people and sending out questionnaires, you try to, to find certain common themes of what that experience is. And his was, what is the spiritual path? And you come up with themes and then theme clusters and finally you distill it down to the essence of what's the, phenomenal, what's the phenomenology of that experience, what's the actual experience. And when he did a, he compiled a dissertation about this thick, over 500 pages of all his data and he distilled it down to the essence of the spiritual path is grieving of learning to let go. So anybody that enters the spiritual path, anybody who's even born into this world, 
definition of birth, leading cause of grief. And you look around here and you see that every single person here is carrying their measure of grief, loss. Uh, And not just grief and loss of loved ones. That's one kind of grief. That's a big one. That's, you know, what we get so deeply attached to. I'm experiencing at least a little bit... It's not really peripheral because it's very close in my family, but my sister-in-law, her... I've told the story here on Tuesday nights, but for those of you who haven't heard it, my sister-in-law was visiting us in, in early May. And we were actually having a celebration of of 25 years of marriage. We were celebrating my... We, we did a, a five party. It was on Cinco de Mayo. My daughter's 15th birthday, which is coming up in a few weeks. My 65th, I'm Medicare birthday in October. My wife's 55th, which was just during July. And our 25th wedding anniversary, all in the same year. So, but we were celebrating, and my, wi- my wife's sister was visiting, and we get a call that my, um, her son hiking innocently with his six-month pregnant wife in Hawaii. She gets hit by a boulder and dies instantly. Unspeakable grief. So there's all kinds, and that kind of trauma, that kind of grief, it takes a long time to process that. It's a big deal. But there are many kinds of grief. The grief for the loss of our ideals, of what our expectations. Uh, um, yeah, there's just... I'm, it would be interesting to take a survey of what, do you, what have you grieved about? And just maybe even have a cry together because it's just so much part of, our, part of our life. The unfortunate thing is people aren't very good at grieving, aren't very good at just feeling... Uh, a sense of deep loss and feeling it through, working it through, um, connecting with other people, being, letting it be normalized, accepted, mirrored by others. Not good at just being able to be emotionally articulate and just let ourselves, our bodies retch when they retch. Uh, afraid of feelings because sometimes they feel so out of control. And part of our Dharma practice is learn, one, to normalize the fact that there's grief and loss in so many ways. Ideals, expectations, relationships, uh, our health, uh, our wealth, uh, just so many things that we can grieve about. That To be able to learn that that's part of life. It's, in fact, Thich Nhat Hanh said, impermanence or just the changing of things, that's the fragrance of life. It's not weird. It's not just happening to you. It's, it's happening to everyone. But we're not very good at it. And when we're not very good at it, we get, we get um, tight. And often, instead of just feeling our loss, we, we'll feel uncomfortable and then blame other people and become really prickly. And, and maybe that's a stage of grief anyway, but, but often people harden into their, into their defensive reactions to grief. And then what turns what we call grief isn't really um, isn't really just the feeling of loss. That pure grief is just loss and uh, 
an acceptance of our loss. But grief often gets mixed with intense aversion. That's when it becomes the, what we usually talk about as grief. And there's this kind of clinging and, and just not wanting it to be so. And of course, that may be part of the process too. But when it gets hardened into, uh, into an inability to actually feel it and share with others and get support, etc., which I think is really a helpful thing. Have rituals about it, some way of consecrating it, all of that, uh, ritualizing it. Uh, if you can't do that, then we, we start um, compounding the stress that comes from our loss. When it can be felt and, and, uh, and metabolized, it becomes the cause of our, of our freedom our joy, our, our compassion, our tenderness, our sweetness. It's tenderizing. I, I, I know countless times here I've, I've um, shared the, the um, Hafez poem, Absolutely Clear. He says, don't surrender your loneliness. And you can interchange grief, you can interchange any other kind of emotion. He says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it season and ferment you as few divine or, or human or divine ingredients can. And then he ends it by saying, something missing in my heart has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of the divine absolutely clear. So it opens us up to life. Not the idea of it, but the direct experience. That's what often we call the divine, is that feeling of being... Of, of that which moves inside of you and moves inside of me. That's not really easy to put in words. That's what the Dharma awakens in us, the, uh, the, the spirit, um, minus the word. Sam Keen, another fa- favorite uh, quote about what happens when we're, we don't metabolize our grief, don't let ourselves grieve well. He writes, um, just to give you a little background on Sam Keen, a theologian, psychologist, whose book Faces of the Enemy, Reflections on the Hostile Imagination, shows how, and he talks about how hatred, warfare, etc. gets um, perpetuated when really the, the foundation of a lot of what we're mad at in life is just, uh, you know, there are so many things to be frustrated. And, but there's a lot of grief just about life not being, um, not, not carrying the, the um, measure of love that we think it should, that there's so much greed and hatred and ignorance, so much racism, so much... Uh, Everyism, every sense of othering is so pronounced, it's really easy to, uh, to get hardened and aggressive about it and not, and not um, grieve for the loss of uh, the, the beautiful possibility and ideal of, of, of love and mutual caring and uh, seeing our common humanity. So here's what Sam Keen had to say. He says, to lessen the qua- the the quantity of cruelty and sadism, we must learn to listen to the cry 
beneath violence. The victor must hear himself in the victim's cry. The winner feel himself in the humiliation of the loser. So long as we can visit pain on another, we need not feel our own pain. Anger lifts depression. For a time, purging our rage on a scapegoat relieves us of the feeling. But the need for the cleansing of the unacceptable feelings builds up. And we must plunge into a new cycle of violence, circle of violence. The only certain way out of the blind ritual of war, see it in the larger sense, of the, the only certain way out of the blind ritual of war is by learning to substitute grief for anger. Those who mourn the childhood love they never had, who treat their own wounds tenderly, learn to forgive and to break the vicious circle of the wounded and the wounding. When we are unable to confess that our own parents, our own governments, our own styles of life have disappointed and injured us, we will inevitably create an enemy on whom we heap our anger. Every day we are not grieving is a day we will be taking vengeance. So grieving is, uh, it's really the name of the game, learning how to let go, how to let go into our feelings. And you know there's a famous story from the, from the time of the Buddha called the mustard seed. Most of you heard it before. There was a woman who, uh, very beautiful, pious woman. There's a little advanced story where she, would see the beauty and things that she would see gold and silver and in ashes and uh, but anyway she so this man um, was became enamored with her and he married her and she gave birth to a child and her child her only child died and uh, she was she carried this dead child all over town and ask, asking people to provide medicine for her child, even though the child was clearly dead to everyone who could see. And they saw her as, um, as having lost her mind, you know, unable to accept the death. So some wise person told her to go see the Buddha. She went to see the Buddha, and the Buddha, she said, can give me medicine. She said, he said, I'd be happy to, to give you um, medicine for what, what you need for this, uh, for your child. And he said that, I want you to find a handful of mustard seed. And I want you to retrieve the mustard seed from any home who has not lost a, a partner, a child, a parent. I think I wrote it down this evening because I thought I might talk about this. Uh, who had not lost a husband or a wife, a child, a parent, or a friend. And so she went from home to home looking for the handful of mustard seed. And nobody had been without loss. And it was through her experience of the, of the 
universality, our community looking at each other and knowing that we all have to carry our measure of loss, that she was able to accept the loss of her child. So one of the ways that we that that loss is um, not accepted is is through our obviously through our mental reactions and Sam Keen's piece spoke about that. But our common reaction is so deeply wanting to think things to be otherwise, uh, wanting things to be different than the way they actually are that we that our our mind just clings to uh, to that um, to that state of craving for things to be different it's um, it's what the Buddha described as the second noble truth there's things that are hard to bear but the the second arrow is that we that's it's hard enough just to experience loss but then we add to it this resistance to it or hatred about it um, and what what seems to cure that, what seems to to help us to let go, is to uh, is to see with much more clarity what's actually true. To then, to the extent that we're able to open to the truth, live in accord with not how I want it to be, how I wish it was, but how it actually is. And to support us to be able to normalize our, our experience of things the way they are, we, we accompany that turning toward reality with a, with a, a, a repetitive uh, reflection. The one, that's one of the common reflections that's used to develop equanimity. I think David Lewis may have spoken about equanimity a few weeks ago. But there are many, there, there are three main recitations that, that people use. But um, the one that I like, especially in regard to loss and loss of ideals, loss of, um, loss of near and dear ones is, although I wish it were otherwise. And that acknowledges our pain for having things not turn out the way we want them to. Although... I wish things were otherwise. Things are as they are. This is true. And if it was just left with things are as they are, you know, just this is how it is, it may sound kind of cool or indifferent, but when it's balanced with the caring and the wish, knowing that we all wish things were different and that that's a a strong pattern in our hearts, and it's natural, it's our, part of our humanity to, to wish we had a, a more uh, equitable world. We wish that every single person had the same opportunities, that, that um, the differences in race and gender were not institutionalized in the way they are. I wish that were true. And things are as they are. So that that finding that equanimity allows me to um, to not suffer so much, not suffer that that rope burn that comes from clinging too tightly to how I wish it was. 
So that's one of them, as long as I'm on the topic. Maybe David did this, but repetition's good in the Dharma. That's why there are so many lists. You just, first noble truth, second noble truth. The most elaborate one and traditional one is, uh, is all beings, and I think I've already covered that a little bit tonight. All beings are the inheritors, are the heirs of, of karma. And if you're born, karma of being born a human is you die a human. You die. You get sick, you get old, you die. It's normal. Not just you. So all beings are the heirs of their karma. And that it's, mo- it's usually related to their actions. So the, what we experience in our lives is the fruit of what, of what we do with our body and speech and mind. And, and a lot of the patterning of our body, speech and mind is, is collective. It's systemic. So it's not, really, it's not really our fault. But yet we are the inheritors of whatever our actions are, body, speech and mind. So all beings are the inheritors of their karma. Their happiness or their unhappiness depends on their actions, not uh, on my will or my wish. And the other version of it is, I care about you. I care about how things turn out. But I, I care about you, but I cannot keep you from suffering. It's a way of saying, I know that you are... I will do everything I can to support you in your life and for your happiness, but your happiness depends on your, on your actions to a great degree. Um, or your conditions, not necessarily on my will or my wish. So if it was just everything is your karma, that would sound, that would be indifference. That's the near enemy of equanimity. But if there's an understanding of, I care, I will do everything I can. I want things to be otherwise, but things are as they are. So you would think that that coolness, the the cooling that comes through the development of equanimity would, uh, would, would, it'll soften the aversion to grief but it actually allows grief to be felt. It allows you to experience pure loss of the fact that somebody near and dear or your ideals or your, your health has been lost. Ah, it's just the way it is. The beauty of our mindfulness practice or the practice of, of training the mind, is it replaces, when you train the mind, you replace the mind that is, that is resisting, aversive, or grasping. It replaces it with knowing, with knowing how things are in any moment, of staying right where you are. And that knowing, when practiced over and over, takes the stickiness out of whatever it is that we experience in our life. We just, and so the natural face of, of mindfulness is equanimity and the capacity to grieve. So it's easy to talk about this. Um, it is easy to talk about this, but we don't talk about it very much. We don't talk about grief very much. 
and it's, it's almost like a taboo subject, but it really, it's just part of life. And as, as um, Jack Engler said, it's the essence of the Dharma. It's the essence of our spiritual practice is to learn to grieve. Anybody here not had losses? So let's, let's celebrate our common humanity by turning our loving attention to our, our whatever our own measure of grief is, whatever residue is present in this room, for turn it first toward ourselves, and then expand your field of compassionate attention, loving attention to include everyone in this room. And as we do with a compassion, I think you had a week on compassion too, we inwardly, both most important is the sharing the spirit of it, but inwardly we support the sharing the spirit of compassion with the words. I care about your suffering. And we say it to ourselves, we say it to each other, or may you be free of suffering. May your suffering ease. So, toward yourself right now, toward all the beings in this room. May we all care about each other's suffering. So clearly, the last thing I'll say is, clearly the Buddha's guru was death. Uh, was um, what really turned him toward the Dharma was the reality of sickness, aging, and 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 dying, and um, and the that became what the first three of what are called the four heavenly messengers what actually turned you toward that process of learning how to let go, how to let go into the stream of life, how to normalize the reality of sickness, old age, and death rather than resist it. And what turned him toward finding in this very life, in the very life he was living, and the, finding the deathless, finding that in us which is, which is untouched by the reality of sickness, aging, and dying. That there is an element of our nature, our innermost nature, deepest nature, that is, that is um, intrinsically, primordially free. Um, and that, that human beings can, uh, can awaken to that in us which is deathless, and that itself... Uh, enhances and frees us from the torments of uh, of grief, and allows us to to live in harmony with the fact that this, uh, although the awakening depends on this body, uh, the, our bodies uh, are not we are not defined by our body, 
And so we loosen through our practice, we loosen our identification with our body. And in the letting go of that identification, we, we realize within us um, that which we are that doesn't, that doesn't have, is not born and does not die, has no height, has no depth, has no color, has no shape, has no inside, has no outside, has no, um, has no time. And of course, the invitation of the teaching is to know if this is so, look within the nature of your mind. Study your mind. Study. Study the body. Study the mind and see, is there, is, is there uh, within this mind-body process, is there anything you can cling to? Is there anything in this world that you can cling to? And the Buddha's suggestion is if you, can, if you can keep studying this, you will see nothing whatsoever can be clung to. And with the cessation of clinging, then there is the cessation of becoming, of trying to get somewhere. And with the cessation of becoming, there's the cessation of the, of the fuel that keeps driving us into our imagination of going. And we with the cessation of, of fighting reality, we wake up to the, to the timeless, um, our timeless nature. This is why in the Diamond Sutta, Buddha said, Thus shall we think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. And all an invitation to... to uh, Step out of the, the dream of time into, into, the, into the Dharma, into life. So may we all be liberated. May we all learn to grieve. May we all learn to let go. And may we all discover the, the deathless. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all because we all need it. We're all... We're all what, what we sometimes call dukkawalas. We all have dukkha as a word for things that are hard to bear. So let our dukkha become our path. Let it become the cause of liberation. Thank you so much for listening.